What's up people, welcome back to yet another episode of Kickoff Sessions. Thank you for joining me in yet another episode, in episode 57. If you are listening at night, you're very welcome for listening today. Whenever you're listening, wherever you're listening, thank you very much for joining another episode. This episode is going to be absolutely excellent. It's one of my favorite, as well as nearly every episode. Every episode these days is becoming one of my favorites. This episode is with Max Pasham. We discuss everything around personal finance, managing your finance, managing all of your investing, and understanding and conquering your debt. These areas are stuff that I take very seriously, and as a result, I wanted to get a top-class guest in to discuss them in close, close detail. And who better than Max Pasham? So a little bit of Max, he was previously a VP at One Wealth Management Financial and Insurance Services. He is a qualified financial advisor, examining clients' expenses, income, insurance coverage, financial objectives, tax status, risk tolerance, and all other information really needed to develop a financial plan. In essence, he's helping people like yourself, his clients, understand the complicated world, financial world that we live in, all doing so without making your head explode pretty much. He is an avid LinkedIn user. If you don't use LinkedIn and if you want to get interested in it, I would advise following him. He posts every day a lot of free content. He gives you a lot of great information about how to manage your personal finance, how to manage all your debt, and really how to do it in a simplistic way. So there's a lot of confusing information out there, financial jargon out there, which make things quite complicated. And I am one as well that gets quite confused when I look at these things online. Therefore, today with Max, we break out some of these very important financial pillars. We look at our own financial capabilities. We look at how to manage them. We look at why we screw them up so badly on an ongoing basis, me included. We look at investing. We look at how to think of investing for the long term. We look at how to shake off the kind of rough edges around markets, which we have seen quite a lot in over the last couple of months, last couple of years. And we also look at things like student debt and quote unquote financial freedom. These are areas that I love to discuss at length. And Max is a super cool dude. He's down to earth, he's chill. And we just go into very good detail on it. So before we get going, if you can share this episode on Instagram, that'd be super helpful. Tag Kickoff Sessions. If you're not following Kickoff Sessions already, follow me on Instagram. Follow me on LinkedIn at Darren Lee. And just enjoy this episode. So I leave right here. Here is my episode with Max all around how to master your finances, your investing and your debt. Max, you are very welcome to yet another episode of Kickoff Sessions. I've loved following your work all around personal finance, wealth, and understanding debt, understanding your money. And it's just been super awesome for young people. And I think really getting a grip of this stuff is difficult. That's where a lot of the value comes in it. And I'm super excited for our conversation. Yeah, likewise. I'm happy to be here, man. Yeah, of course. Of course. Can you give a small bit of background into like your background in kind of finance and where you've got onto this kind of path? Because you've been building for quite some time. You're building up this audience and providing some really valuable information on finance people. Yeah, for sure. So I've been in the industry for about seven years now, and I kind of have moved 
in different types of jobs up until leaving the point that I'm in right now. Uh, so I, you know, I started out in the industry working in investor relations. And then from there, I had moved into the financial planning space, first starting as an associate and then working as an advisor. Uh, from that point, I worked as a VP at uh, our boutique firm, One Wealth Management for a couple of years. And up until recently, I've actually transitioned out of that to start my own RIA uh, as a fee-only advisor. So it's been a long process getting to this point. And the reason why I'm at this point right now is because of this push that I currently have to make sure that everyone understands the complicated financial world that they live in. And they can do so as simply as possible, so easy that a fifth grader could be able to learn it. So I, I'm right now advising clients right now on how they should be managing and planning out their future goals with regarding to uh, finances. And then right now, I'm just pushing the message of uh, getting everyone as educated as possible. And over the last couple of years, the latter has created a lot of good traction for myself because I've just been giving free information to everyone. And that's how we connected uh, via LinkedIn. So here I am now. Yeah, man, that seems to be the approach, you know, offering free content, building up your audience, and then, you know, you can build your business around it. And taking that leap must have been difficult for you because you're working in the finance sector. I'm working in well, finance and tech, really, more the tech element of it. And, you know, I know how difficult it is, all like the, you know, the financial terms that get thrown at you to make things more difficult often than not. So your approach has been really unique because it's like, okay, let's chill this out. Let's make this normal to a five-year-old to a 60-year-old and that's often the thing as well you know older people for generation may not uh, be as you know savvy with a lot of this jargon that's thrown at us yeah and you know that's the thing about finances is that people tend to overcomplicate it sometimes i mean make no mistake the entire industry what it has to offer what it has to teach is very complicated but I think that there's a barrier that can easily be broken down in terms of how we understand what it is and what we know, what we should be having in our own uh, financial plan to make sure that we excel ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm attempting to break that barrier down and I'm not the first and I'm certainly not the last to do it, but everyone has their own approach to teaching this and everyone has their own approach towards our business model. And the way that I have been positioning it is that I have been with enough large institutions to know what the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then just taking only the good and creating that for everyone else and to do it in a way that they can understand it for themselves because there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of miscommunication, and as a result, there's a lot of distrust. So we have to make sure that we as financial professionals are the ones that we can be able to gain that trust back by always working our clients' best interest and to be as transparent as possible with what we're teaching to them. Of course. And trust is everything when it comes to you know business, buying products, buying customer service or whatever. And especially when it comes to managing money, it's all built around trust and building up that reputation, you know, so whether it's pushing your content online or whatever, it's been a good way to get that platform, you know. Where I wanted to start was with a, an interesting post you had during the week. So a lot of your stuff, I think, is great. And I had to condense it down to one. And one of them that I, that I was following was, if you have one million in assets and one million liabilities, you have zero net worth. However, if you have one dollar in assets and zero in liabilities, you have one dollar of net worth. 
I know it's an interesting perspective because people think the more you earn, you know, the more I can spend and the more flashy it gets and we start buying things we don't, you know, we don't necessarily need. So what's even your thoughts on that in a simplistic way of like how to manage your wealth and how to understand how much money you really have? Yeah. And I, I think it was an interesting post too, because I don't think the real estate community took that one too well, <laughs> because uh, I guess that they had interpreted that a million dollars in debt is bad, you know, but it was kind of missing the point that I was trying to articulate. And it's not saying that too many assets is uh, good nor bad, neither is too much debt is bad or good. The point is how you use them. And it's the how in that where you could be able to tailor that into your own situation. And someone with a million dollars of debt, it may actually work for them or having zero of it may work for something else. But the point of that is to really show that finances are is very complicated, but if you really put two and two together, you realize that it's a lot more simple than we think. But I think that that what that post really drew on is that everyone has a different way to approach it. And I saw that really well. And that is very reflective of how people view their finances. Everyone looked at that post and I had five different ways of looking at it, maybe even more. And it just shows that everyone approaches it the way that they are taught how they learn about it and really how they manage their money. So it's good to see how people react to it so that it's a reminder for you that not everyone requires the same solution for them. Mm, it's so interesting because the debt element is such a big, you know, um, talking point. Cause some people say, you know, you want, never want any debt. Speaking of which actually my girlfriend's always saying never want any of debt. But my idea is that, you know, if you can, afford it if you have a bit of uh, income and you're able to leverage it to maybe build your business or if it is in real estate or whatnot you're essentially you know turning it into a, a moving and working asset so there's different ways to, to slice and dice it for sure and that's where uh, it gets more complicated you need kind of people that are understanding both sides of the coin and i've seen it myself you know with people even like my parents or whatnot who are just earning a certain salary it doesn't make sense for them to take on additional debt Whereas for other people, it may be, it may be better, you know, but really focus around like young, young professionals. How should we approach our finances, especially when we're start taking our, our income, you know, our first salary, so first salary is pretty low in around two and a half thousand dollars, $3,000 at most, you know, often, how should you think we should approach that from, from a mental aspect? I think we should approach it kind of what you were on, uh, you were talking about before, just like how you were viewing debt, right? Like, mm -hmm. You know, some people say that debt is good and some people say it's bad. Um, you know, the way that I see it is that money, your income, debt, they're all just tools. They're all just things that you use, right? They are not a reflection of who you are. How you use it is a reflection of who you are. If you take on too much consumer debt for yourself, you're a reckless person. If you take on consumer debt in the, in the pursuit of paying that back next month, you might be a responsible person, right? If you, do, if you take on consumer debt for the purpose of building up rewards, you might be a little more responsible than that first person that took on too much consumer debt. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I like to remind people is that money doesn't make you evil. What you do with money makes you evil. If you inflict pain onto people with that money, it makes you a terrible person. So going back to your question of what should we do 
what's the, what, what's step one? It's just understanding your why. Like when you make income for yourself and you want to put your money on the side, ask yourself, okay, it's awesome that we got to the first step of we're putting money on the side for a financial plan, but why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I tell people to do that is not so that not so much that we can create a roadmap for it, but really to give you the motivation to do it again and again and again. Because I think just saying to yourself, ah, I want to save, you know, 20% of my income just because I know it's a responsible thing. I don't think that's a compelling argument for you to do that over the next 20 years. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, if you give yourself a compelling argument, like, hey, I'm going to put 20% on the side because I know it's going to give me options. They're going to give me flexibility. And then that in turn is going to give me more freedom. That's going to give you more motivation than ever to put that 20% on the side. I completely agree. Like having that kind of why and understanding of like, where's the end goal? And I think it comes from just having like this goal set up. And I think when I was younger, like really young, like 19, 20, 21, I was always traveling during the summer, but I had to earn my money to go traveling. So if I wanted to do six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, I had to do those hard hours and part-time jobs to do it. So I could always spend a year working hard to save, working hard, working hard. And that became my why. And as I became older, started traveling a little bit less. And then I had the same goal it wasn't the same goal of going traveling but it was like okay this is the idea that i want let's say i wanted to build a business and i needed to have x amount of money i was able to use the earlier tendencies of save my wealth because i wanted to do something to now having this new reason why and i made it so much more easier instead of saying you know i need 20 percent, and then you're going out a night out with your friends and you're like oh, i'll dip a small bit into it because there's no end goal and i don't know should there be short-term and long-term goals but I was often setting short-term girls, short-term goals as I was younger. And now I have a combination of both of things in the short term I want to hit. And I have longer term mm-hmm. goals then that are, you know, it's kind of more like comfort. It's like, okay, you know, if I wanted to go and build myself, I have this nest egg that say that I can bide myself some time. And that became really valuable to me. And I, I learned it indirectly, let's say. Yeah. And, and that's a good strategy too, because if you use it all in one place, you know, it, it can be very inefficient for what you're trying to do because mm-hmm. they have the saying, uh, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Right. And they say that because what they, what people want you to do is to be a little conscious of the dangers of doing that. Because if you leave it all in one single location, so let's just say if you leave it all for a long term, like what you were doing, but you leave nothing for the short term, what happens there? Let's say you invest everything in the market. Okay. And they're all for the long, long run. And you say to yourself, okay, I want to invest this in the future. And this is going to be 20 years from now. But then tomorrow uh, you lose your job and the economy goes bad. And that's why you lost your job. And the market tanks about 50%. So now not only has your assets gone down, but you have no income to support it. And if you put everything in the long term, you have to liquidate everything you have in the long term. So what happens that disrupts your future growth that can create a taxable event for yourself. It can ruin the potential that you have for whatever goals you have in the future. When all of that could be completely avoided. If you just had a short-term goal, like if you had cash, if you had a vehicle that was specifically set for you to tap into it, when these short-term occurrences happen, 
So it's really important for people to understand that when you lay it out, you give yourself more efficiency for how you want to distribute it after you spent all this time accumulating everything. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that we kind of get those things wrong? Like, so we can kind of see that you explained it really well and really clearly that, okay, there's these scenarios that will absolutely ruin you financially, but we still continue to make these mistakes. Is it kind of naivety? Is it kind of, you know, a lack of awareness, kind of a confirmation bias that we're trying to stick and say, okay, I know better, you know, I'm trying to do the best or, or are we just kind of, you know, misinformed really? It's because we're humans. That's why. <laughs> I mean, we just act on emotion, you know, when, when we see it, when we open up the Wall Street Journal and it says breaking news, uh, Dow is down 5%, everyone goes crazy. I get phone calls to me saying, Max, uh, what the heck is going on? I'm invested in the market, blah, 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 blah. And the reason why people hire me is because they can contact me. So I could snap them out of it and be like, hey, you know, this is either a correction or, you know, the market is not doing, you know, precisely well at this time, but it's going to bounce back. And even if it does go down, we have to think about the long run. People just are very emotionally tied with their money. There's no way around that. There's no course you could buy. There's no coach you can get one time to give you that peace of mind that you're looking for if you're not considered consistently monitoring yourself because we are very emotionally tied no matter what we try to be cold Turkey with it, but we hate the downside of money. We react to that way more than the potential upside and we make rational decisions and that's just who we are. We're very emotional. We don't like to lose. We just want to win. And especially when, doesn't make things easier when you see, uh, you know, like your friend or an uh, internet stock guru say, oh, I'm doing well because of my strategy. And you're like, wait, I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you're going to be constantly reminded of this over time. So it's not so much that people are misinformed. They just don't know how to handle it because it's in human nature to really not dislike this loss and then to act as a result in order to get us out of that, you know, sense of discomfort. So it's it just what happens to us when, you know, the going gets rough. And those are like the kind of behavioral tendencies of just humans just being irrational and doing crazy things. If you're aware of um, Daniel Crosby, he's a PhD in psychology. He focuses on behavioral, behavioral finance. <laughs> and um, I spoke with him recently on my, on my show and he said the biggest element there is attention. One of the f- four factors is, is attention. And that, that drives from the media. And the media is what pulls a lot of these crazy decisions that we make. Whereas if we had just our plan, we had just our strategy, we wouldn't have made these irrational decisions. And perfect example is, yeah, Dow Jones, NASDAQ drops 2% and everyone jumps from it. And um, I don't know, are you familiar with the, I think the term is, it was a lost era. It was the only, the last decade, the only decade in time that some funds, um, if you started at the start of the decade and you, you know, took, you kept your money till the end of the decade, you wouldn't make money. It was from zero, zero to 2009. It's called the last decade. Yeah. But there was one fund that actually made money. So if you start, started in 2000 and you kept 2010, you would have made money. But at the end of it, there was like nobody left in there because they all reacted to the news in 2006, 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. sold. And as a result, then, you know, everyone was, everyone was worse off. And no one stuck to the original plan. So that's very, you know, telling on 
the human side of, okay, maybe you should invest in this passive investment strategy and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I was actually going to make a piece of uh, content this week on that. And it was something that I, I kind of analyzed because, you know, obviously the lost decade is, you know, this period of time where despite, you know, the market doing incredibly well, if you looked at that entire period, you saw that uh, the S&P 500 didn't make any money, right? It barely created return. So I said to myself, like, okay, this happened over this decade. Uh, how often does that happen, right? Like we look at, you know, long-term investing for ourselves and we, we try to see, okay, what's an appropriate time horizon for us to make any changes. So what I did was I analyzed every single decade. I think it started from the forties all the way to uh, the 2010s. Okay. And so it's a eight decades there. What I found is that five out of eight decades, if you start in the beginning, like if you started in 1940 or you start in the beginning of 1950, 1960, 1970, 98, and so on, five out of those eight decades, you, if you started in the beginning after 10 years, you would have done incredibly well for yourself. But in three out of those eight, you would have lost money being in the market. Now that's interesting, right? Because we're always told, uh, you know, that we should look at the long run. We should always analyze that. And what a lot of people try to say is, well, you know what? You should look past 10 years. We should look at 20 years. We should look at 30 years. And they're right. We should look at 20 years or 30 years or beyond. And if we put it that time horizon, we would have seen positive returns. But here's the thing that people don't realize, and it kind of comes back to my job, is imagine you, as an investor, you had an investment strategy and you were uh, investing in this you know, layout that you had your portfolio, your plan, and whatnot. 10 years of your life, your life go by. You've been investing, not, doing the, not making any changes or whatnot, just focusing on the long run. After 10 years, you look back and you see that you're losing money. Do you say, do you seriously say to yourself, Hey, it's the long run. I let's hold this out another 10 years. I guarantee you, most people will say, no, I want to make a change. I want to do well. My buddy did well over the past 10 years. Something is wrong. Mm -hmm. So while people like to look at a 30 year scale or a 20 year scale or however long it is. Okay. The reality is that we are humans in between each year is 365 days where we're either thinking about money, hesitating about money. And we have to think about those short-term impulsions that we have in between. So while it's easy to say, Hey, just invest over 30 years, try doing that over 10, lose money and tell me how easy that is to do that over 30 years. It's crazy. It's crazy. And if you looked at that just from purely the return element, you'd say, okay, of course, I'm going to take my money out in 10 years. But imagine throwing in your life in there. So as you get older, you may want a house. You may want a kid. You may have a kid at this stage. You may have a wife and things like this you need to support. So at that stage, it's not just going to be you that says, let's take out my money. It's going to be a, a lifestyle event that says, you know, I need this cash now. It's obviously not working for me. I did something wrong. And you'll come back to it. You know, and I often find out with some of my friends that are older, they say, look, 
you know, I needed this money for my house, which is fair, of course. I needed this money for renovations for a new house. And Mm -hmm. when things are settled, I'll start investing again in the market and start doing it again. How do you think, how do you proportion that in in your head and think that like you should anticipate future events? Because I, I find that quite, quite difficult as well, because even though I have proportion, which is liquid cash or whatnot, and I have longer term views, I still think that there's some, you know, black swan events, which could disrupt the entire nature of it. Yeah, well, it's that's where the planning comes into play, right? Because what you have to say to yourself is, you know, when these black swan events happen, when the market goes down, when the economy isn't doing well, we know, we know that the best way for you to compound your investments over time is just to not touch it. And it's to actually let it compound and not disrupt it whatsoever. I feel, I, I think Charlie Munger uh, might have said that famously, but when you when we say that, then we have to say to ourselves is, how long can we hold out for until it's like we need these types of investments? Like for me personally, I have enough liquidity uh, to help myself for a year without me touching uh, my market funds, right? And I, I purposely did that for that reason, because I understand that if I want these historical uh returns to compound on each other. I can't disrupt it. I can't change it. I can't, uh, you know, make any changes that would, you know, create uh, or disrupt that growth in general. So you have to reflect on yourself and say, you know what, if the market does go bad, how long can I personally hold out for? And I think that's where the risk tolerance comes into play, because I feel like as young people, we can hold out for a long time. But if you're close to retirement, it, that's not going to be as easy to do because you're about to make distributions from your funds in the next couple of years. So you need a liquidity to help you make sure that you're not tapping into there. So it's all going to depend on how you feel when those market fluctuations happen. That requires a deeper analysis and just understanding how you are. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something great there about that kind of framework and risk. So for a lot of people, they, they don't really understand this or, or whatnot. So how do you kind of uh-huh. like mitigate against these risks? So having that emotional element of it and you know, often removing the emotional element of it, but how, what type of mitigants would you look at, let's say, to make this as, a, as less, less violent to your finances, let's say? Uh, you know, it's, it's why my clients hire me in the first mm-hmm. place, because they need a secondhand opinion. They need a sense of accountability. And I think that to assume that you can do this alone is what's going to cause you go in the direction that you're not going to want to go down. It's good to find a partner. And I'm not saying you have to hire a financial advisor. It could be a relative. It could be your best friend. It's someone that you work with because they need to see eye to eye with you to push you back into shape and kind of snap you out of it. Because the more you talk to yourself and the more you say, I can't do this, I can't do this, the more that becomes who you are. So so getting an alternative standpoint is what's going to really help you get back into the framework. Okay, this is why I'm doing this. I knew this was going to happen. I knew that these occurrences were going to put me in this position. How am I going to snap myself out of it? Because there's no silver bullet to handle a thing 
market fluctuations. There's ways that you can do it. You can create or you can reallocate your funds. You could have different pools of assets that you tap into in certain events. You can go into options. You could do all those things, but you're still going to have those impulsions. So I think that having an accountability partner is what's really going to help you stay on track over time. I've seen it work tremendously with my friends and they've been able to snap each other out of, you know, whatever concern that they had because they know that this impulsion that they have was going to totally disrupt what they have. I completely agree. I think the purpose of like, men- like mentors, even if they're friends or coaches is so important with this stuff. And how I learned so this important. was, was indirectly really with my friends. So two of my best mates, they're both like really experienced and they're really like logical guys, but one guy is a bit more riskier. You know, he's happier to take that kind of risk, have that kind of unhedged view. The other one is a bit more conservative, really logical, really sensible. And we find that kind of ebb and flow balance. And we may not ever like take that exact advice, of course, because it's not, you know, there's no silver bullet. But we discuss and we've been discussing from a very early age, but there's only a couple of hundred dollars in our bank account right up until now yeah. where we're trying to actually manage portfolios that are personal, you know, because we don't necessarily have the access to get into financial advice right now or you know, there's quite some, there's a lot of fees in Ireland compared to the state. It's a bit more, um, it's a bit less developed, let's say. So what I'm trying to say is that when we just bounce ideas off each other, we learn intrinsically the right tendencies, the wrong tendencies. We still make some mistakes, of course, but mm-hmm. I feel like I'm in a better position now compared to myself, just literally looking at my portfolio and thinking, you know, <laughs> where's the next, the next move, you know? Right. Yeah. I, and that's, it's all about those conversations really, because the more you talk to yourself, the more you're going to convince yourself into ideas that might not necessarily be true. I mean, that's just who we are, right? Like when we are keeping that information to ourselves and our opinions and our feelings to ourselves, they just, they just blow up inside. So it's good to just, you know, get someone to smack you across the head and just snap you out of the situation and just remind them, Hey, this is why we're here. And this is the kind of accountability that we need for each other. Of course, of course. Next area I wanted to chat about, which I think is super interesting. And it's one of the main reasons why I love a lot of the work you do online is around student debt, debt in general, not even student debt, just credit and whatnot. So yeah, student debt in America is absolutely bonkers. And of course, you know, if you're making money and we should be saving it, we should be investing it. But the reality is we have lifestyle events like, like debt that we took on at a young age or, or whatnot, you know, so how do you even, um, what's your thoughts on the student debt in, in the States at the moment? You know, universities there are much different than Europe. Um, how do you think about that just yourself personally? Yeah, my personal opinion of student uh, debt is, um, it's pretty interesting because I feel like um, it's a manner of understanding why we even got to this position in the first place. And I think when you really look back at it, you start to really understand the catalyst because there's multiple different catalysts to where we got to where we are. And it kind of, we're in this really interesting position right now where people uh, debate today, you know, what's causing the tuitions to go up. You may argue that it's universities increasing their prices. You may argue that demand is just going up because more people want education. And then you may make the argument that it's just the government's giving out student loans. So there's artificial demand that comes from it. The reality is it's a combination from the three, in my opinion. But I think that 
what we are seeing right now is a situation where we have to take two steps back and ask this, ourselves this question. Why is it that a student with no income background, with no expertise on uh, managing their money, really doesn't know what to do in the future, is given a $100,000 loan freely without any application behind it. I mean, you apply, but you're going to get it, right? If you go, if you're admitted to a college, but a businessman walks into a bank and despite the planning that goes on, despite the history they have, there's got to be a couple checks with that. And it's significantly harder to get a business loan. I look at these two and I say to myself, you know, it's, we're just in a situation where we're just giving out loans left and right to these kids and they don't know what to do with it. So at this point, it it just feels like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the student loans doing it? Is it the kids doing it? It's nonstop. But the point is that we are in it right now. And there's lots of ways that we can combat this. We can, we can, you know, tell the government, Hey, stop giving out these loans. We could educate students on whether they need the loans or not, or we could somehow lower the demand by that and then force the colleges to lower their prices. And I think it's just, I think the situation has just gotten completely out of control. And I think it's what we need to do around that. That's even more important these days. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting you said by taking a two-step back and look at a perspective and say, why? Why is it we're doing this? Let's say if it's yourself, you, know, you may have done finance or whatnot, it looks like there is a good return on doing your degree if you went to Berkeley, Harvard, whatever. But for a lot of people, there may not be that same return of 300, 400K loans that they need to leverage up on, you know? And that's what mm-hmm. I think is so interesting. It's like, where's that break-even point and that inflection, you know? And you know, completely honest with you, when I finished my course, which was business information systems, so it's essentially half between business and software engineering, I wanted to move into finance and I couldn't break into it. Like, of course I couldn't because I had no real background in it. And I was looking mm-hmm. at a master's in London, in University College London, UCL, and it was 50,000 great British pound, which is like $85,000 maybe or 80K. And I remember yeah. being ready to pull the trigger on it and just thinking to myself saying, what is actually the return from this? And to be honest, I could have ended up in some sort of, you know, financial analyst role, investment banking role, something like this. And I would have probably made it back long-term. But at that point, I just thought to myself, it just wasn't worth my own approach because I'd have to create this five, 10 year payback scheme. And I just didn't want to do it, you know? And I think that was a big turning point for myself. I ended up getting into where I wanted to go to anyway. So I was probably better off in, in, the, in the long run, you know, but how do you think people should really approach it when they do take on that loan and think, okay, now I got to figure out a way to manage my life around this big liability. I think what people need to ask is, you know, when we, when we challenge the concept of college, okay. Like you could, you know, a popular theme in LinkedIn is that like degrees don't matter. Right. Or it's not about, you know, I learned so much more outside of college than in college. Right. So when I say to myself and I, I have these arguments with people all the time online and I've come to this conclusion for myself, I say to myself is in what situation does a degree make sense? Okay. 
because I'm not going to sit here and say that it doesn't make sense to go to college. That's nonsense. Okay. So like there's, there's certain people that go to college and they absolutely need to go to college. A doctor. And yeah, a doctor, a dentist, or a lawyer. It's really those three areas where you absolutely need it. Why? Because of medical school and law school. There's no way you're going to be able to get into a, you know, a good area or really just get that degree without that type of knowledge. So those areas, I know you need to take a student loan out if you don't have it and you need to go in there. But if you're trying to be a journalist, a marketer, uh, all these different professions, we have to ask yourself is like, okay, what you get your college degree, but do you really need it? And it's like, why do we even need our doctors, dentists, or lawyers to have degrees? Because when I take the service of an attorney, a dentist, or a doctor, I better know from the back of my mind that they have a college degree. I'm not going to take a service from them if they don't, right? I mean, this, this is why I got my CFP designation. I didn't really need a bachelor's degree, but the CFP board unfortunately requires you to have a bachelor degree. But I got that CFP designation because I can rest assured to my clients that I'm going to be working their best interest, right? So when I hire a doctor, I know from the back of my mind, hey, this guy has a degree from this school. He is certified to do it. But I'm never going to hire a marketer and say, hey, what college degree do you have? That's irrelevant because I'm interested in their strategies, more importantly. And then there's, there's things in being a doctor or being an attorney, uh, like your health or just liability that we fear so much for ourselves that goes into our livelihood versus everything else is more an addition to our personal life or business life. So I think that when we start to question these things, like whether college is a good idea or not, or whether it's good not to take the student loan, I think getting a plan first and foremost is important. And that starts with getting the kids the right guidance to make those decisions. And that is the, that is something that we need to fill. How we should do it is an ongoing debate in financial literacy today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Like the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, it's your health and it's a bit more severe than a, than a marketing strategy, not the, not the shit on marketers, but as in you can learn that intrinsically, you know, on the ground and get, get better at it, you know? What I wanted to ask as well, it was around, you know, managing your credit. So if you do have loans and whatnot, how should you kind of balance this with your, with your um, income? So it can be quite difficult to, you know, nail those repayments. People fall into, you know, non-performing loans, which you've seen a lot of over the last couple of years with with COVID and whatnot, as well as just missing and messing up their own credit score. Do you advise to try, you know, smash this down as quickly as possible, your, your debt? Or should you just try to do it at a, at a kind of a passive rate as if you were investing into your own fund? Yeah. And that question is ultimately going to be tied into their specific situation because I don't want to tell people uh, you should just go all in on the debt, do nothing for investing because depending on how your student loans or your credit card loans or whatever loan you have is structured, is ultimately going to reveal to me what you are capable of doing. And it goes back to square one is, okay, we want to get rid of this debt. When do we want to get rid of it? Uh, 
how easy is it to get rid of it? And that's going to be mostly tied to your income. Cause the, cause when I go down into uh, repaying debt, I start with cash flow. And what I mean by cash flow, I mean like your personal cash flow, your income and your expenses. Because whatever that difference is, is what you're going to be able to work with. For some reason, a lot of people don't really put those two together. So when I, so I have like a couple of clients right now that are doing debt repayment plans and I'm monitoring them on a monthly basis. Oh, I have a budget sheet that I sent to them. It's not really budget sheet, but it's like it lists all their expenses with their gross income before taxes. After we find that after taxes, we take this amount and we are able to go about repaying certain debts. We can either go with the snowball effect, which is where you take out the lower balances first, or the other way around where we go with the high interest payments first. That's going to be dependent on how the loans are structured. If even before that, though, you don't have any positive cash flow, that's where budgeting is going to have to come to play. And that's where a Dave Ramsey approach is going to be in your favor. Because while I don't personally disagree with, while I personally don't agree with him on a lot of his investing philosophies, I agree with his scarcity mindset when it comes to debt repayment to people that are just in horrible positions. He's great at that. So you have to be able to understand with the income that you have, you're either going to increase it or you're going to make adjustments to your budget. Mm -hmm. For most people, they can't just, you know, instantly increase their income. So that's why they focus on the expense part. So we have to do an analysis on that. Like, what are we looking at here? What adjustments can we make? Because that that positive cash flow is how you are going to break yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And depending on how that is all structured, it could take a couple of months, or in most cases, it could take a couple of years, but it's brick by brick. And then as you make progress with it, then you can be able to explore uh, how you invest on the side or how you save more cash on the side. But at the end of the day, it goes back to square one, which is understanding where you currently are making those adjustments and then using that opportunity of positive cash flow to make an impact and make a change for your future self. I completely agree, especially around like the the expenditure element of it, because a lot of people, you have two options. You can make more money or decrease your expenditure. And it just seems Mm -hmm. like the first approach is to tighten up your expenditure, look at the loose ends. And, you know, I do a similar budget. A lot of my friends would do as well, where they'd look at their fixed expenditure on a monthly basis, which is your rent, your transport, maybe. Then some of the variable amounts are obviously your discretionary and going out and whatnot. And it's been able to get a good, you know, a good hold of these payments and say that, okay, how can we tighten up this to be able to sort out my loans, to be able to make those decisions and improve our, our situation? Because yeah, a lot of people, including myself, until you see it on paper, you don't realize the severity of where you're falling down on. And then you can make sure you hit those payments, make sure you hit those repayments and make sure there's never going to be an issue on that element. Everyone's got a different situation when they approach this. And the, the important thing I like to remind people is just, you know, some have it easier than others. Some have it worse than others, but you don't have to do this alone. You know, yeah. you could reach out, get some help either the resources are available and the people are available and it's just a matter of you going out of your way and asking for help because in most cases 
a lot of people just don't do that because it sucks. Nobody wants to make themselves look weak and nobody wants to make themselves look like they're in a position where they need pity or they need assistance. It's tough. I've seen like clients in absolute tears talking about the situation. They get down to the nitty and gritty of it. It is not easy. It's, it's not a good feeling, especially when you compare yourself to others and where they are in their lifetime because of where their age are, where they are in their career. It sucks. So being able to reach out for help is, is a huge strength that I see in a lot of people. And it just opens a lot of doors once you overcome what is possibly one of the biggest challenges of your lifetime. Of course, of course. The last section I want to touch on <laughs> is around quote unquote financial freedom. So as a financial advisor, you must see a lot of the, the bullshit that you see online, people, <laughs> people, people selling snake oil to a degree. But I think the term is it's actually quite an interesting term because obviously people get a lot of stress to do with money, managing their money and you know the misinformation that they have or, or the not correct information. How do you like think about things like financial freedom, quote unquote, like, you know, is there merit to being comfortable and being, you know, being able to financially support your family and how do we get to that kind of stage? And really, you know, what is the success criteria we should have to say, yes, I'm at a stage now where I am comfortable and freedom. Yeah. Well, it all depends on how you define freedom. Like, what does that even mean to you? You know? And the thing that I think a lot of people tend to miss is why, we aim so much for freedom. Like, why does that even matter? Like, why does it matter that we get to do the things that we want to do and whatnot? I'd argue that freedom is a pursuit for happiness, really. And I think in everyone's situation, everyone wants to be happy. That is the ultimate goal over everything else. So why we do that is so we can achieve happiness for yourself. Now, what does that happiness look like? right? It, it depends on who you are as a person, your aspirations, your goals. If you're, if what brings you happiness is spending a bunch of time with your family, then having a lot of uh, money in your household or positive cash flow is going to give you that flexibility to buy you more time to be with your family. And that's going to what's make you become a happier person. If that means traveling all over the world is what makes you a happy person, then you want to have enough in your financial buckets to make sure that you could be able to fund this while being a peace of mind at home when we talk about finances. So how we define financial freedom changes from person to person. And when you understand what the core of that is, then you define your strategy for what financial freedom is. For some people, that means investing all in the stock market. For some people, we commonly see this in the real estate world is, you know, getting a ton of cash flow, from rental property, or it's, it's whatever variation you make of it. But I think freedom is something that changes from person to person. And the sooner you can identify what is the result or, or rather what, what is the uh, consequence of freedom is when you are able to understand what's the strategy that makes the most sense for you. Mm, completely agree. I completely agree. Like defining like success, like a success criteria. And that's kind of my software kind of development kind of mindset. It's like, okay, what's the 
acceptance, what do we want as, as the, as the end goal, you know? And, uh, for me, it was often alleviating the stress, you know, like the, the worry for tomorrow, if you will, you know, being able to enjoy today and also enjoy tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. as a, you know, the opposite as expression goes, Max, I have to say a massive thank you. I really, really appreciate like, you know, all your help and your feedback. I think, you know, yeah. for, for your existing clients, like hopefully, you know, they get these insights because this has just been super, super helpful for me. I think people of my generation, guys, 23, 26, 27 and girls, this will be hugely inf- informative and really helpful because a lot of this is just not given to people in college or university or school. If we taught personal finance to younger people, they would be able to come out with the right um, approach. But I suppose there's a reason why it's not being taught in schools. But if there was, we'd have a, a better mindset coming out of university. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate hopping on. Just kind of one last thing that, you know, I'll say to, you know, your audience is something that I'd like to remind the people is that, you know, when you deal with finances, you don't need a financial advisor in your life, or you don't need, you know, just like you don't need a financial coach, just like you don't need uh, to buy that financial course that you find online. But more importantly, just like you don't need to do this all by yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's about understanding what you need. And as long as you're addressing those needs, it's going to help you find that, you know, sense of happiness and it's going to bring you closer to your wants. But the sooner you identify that, you're already on a head start compared to most from what I've seen. Mm, of course, of course. And before we wrap up, where can people find, you know, your details and your information? Yeah, so you can you can most likely find me on LinkedIn, it's just Max Patchman, or you can find a lot of my content through the search bar at hashtag Patchmoney. Uh, also, I'm launching my website. It's not live up yet, but it's uh, it'll be coming shortly. So find me on the LinkedIn website. Uh, you'll find all my content, my profile, everything. You'll have my contact information. And I encourage people to reach out if they ever have any questions. There's no charge or anything like that. I'm open to helping anyone out, whatever their situation is. And there we have it for yet another episode. I'd just say a massive thank you to everyone that listened to the very end. A big thank you to Max for coming on the show, giving me all his details, giving me all of his knowledge, essentially to pass off to you guys, because I always want to give you the best service. Now, in all honesty though, I hope you actually do listen and enjoy this and learn, and you can actually go and implement this. That is the whole idea, kickoff sessions. We want to kick off something in our life, and hopefully that has helped today. So I'll leave it right here. Please share the episode if you enjoy it, and I'll see you in the next one.